Father in heaven, thank you once again for this opportunity that we have to come and study, especially as we're looking at the history of the kings, the good kings, and how you worked through them. Lord, we ask that you would please give us lessons that are important to our lives today, that we can apply to our lives, that we might be able to see your hand working and speaking directly to us as well. So lead us now, O Lord, with your spirit, we pray in Jesus' name we pray and ask. Amen. Well, as I said, we're going to be studying, continuing the study on the kings, and today we are going to be looking at King Joash. Before we do that, let's just recap real quick. Jehoshaphat is who we studied last week, and he was a good king. And after he passed away, his son Jehoram would come to reign, and he would come into power, but he would reign for about eight years. And when he became king, what did Jehoram do? Let us look at our first text found there in 2 Chronicles 21 verse 4 and verse 6. The Bible says, Now when Jehoram was risen up to the kingdom of his father, he strengthened himself and slew all his brethren with a sword and divers also of the princes of Israel. And he walked in the way of the kings of Israel like as did the house of Ahab, for he had the daughter of Ahab to wife. And he wrought that which was evil in the eyes of the Lord. When Jehoram came into power, what do we read here that he actually did? The Bible says that he killed all his brothers and married Athaliah. That was the daughter of Ahab and Jezebel. And we know that Ahab and Jezebel was a bad king. And this was a bad union from the beginning. We know this because that union would make him to do evil. The ways of the kings of Israel was not a good way at all. It was not a good path to be following. It was not something that you wanted to be mentioned alongside the way that you were going. And remember, there is basically not one good king at all in the kingdom of Israel. They were all pretty much wicked. So Jehoram was a wicked king, and that's why we're not looking at the son of Jehoshaphat. We're not focusing on any of these wicked kings at all. We are looking at the good kings of Israel. So after Jehoram, he would have a son. His name would be Ahaziah, and he would reign, and he would only reign for one year. And obviously, he was a wicked king as well. But after he died, his mother Athaliah, the wife of Jehoram, she would come to reign. Look at what she did after the son Ahaziah died. Second Chronicles 22 verses 10 through 12. But when Athaliah, the mother of Ahaziah, saw that her son was dead, she arose and destroyed all the seed royal of the house of Judah. But Jehoshabeath, the daughter of the king, took Joash the son of Ahaziah and stole him from among the king's sons that were slain and put him and his nurse in a bedchamber. So Jehoshabeath, the daughter of King Jehoram, the wife of Jehoiada the priest, for she was the sister of Ahaziah, hid him from Athaliah so that she slew him not. And he was with them hid in the house of God six years and Athaliah reigned over the land. So after King Ahaziah died, his mother, Athaliah, would go and kill all her grandchildren, all the sons of Ahaziah. She wanted to reign as queen. And you know, in Revelation, we see a Jezebel mentioned. She is called 
Babylon in Revelation chapter 17. And Jezebel is married to King Ahab and he commits fornication with the kings, or she rather commits fornication with the kings of the earth. So we see this unholy union, uh, unholy woman that was not of the, the Jewish faith marrying this King Ahab, right, who was of the king of Israel. And we see that Athaliah would then be regarded as the daughter of Jezebel, or what we see there in Revelation 17, the daughters of Babylon. And then Athaliah, she goes about killing the remaining seed of King David, and that's likened to the daughters of Babylon, causing persecution at the end of time. But there would be a remnant that would remain. You know, there are end time lessons that we see here as we're studying the history of the kings. Even though they are real life characters back then, there is much that pertains and relates to us today as well. And so we see a very, very clear parallel. So coming back to the, the story there about Athaliah, she would reign for about six years after her son Ahaziah died and she thinks she's killed everybody, all her grandchildren, there's no more seed left. She reigns for six years. And I just want to show you this real quick. So we started off with Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat's son Jehoram would reign, he was wicked. And then we see that Ahaziah, pardon, pardon me, I skipped somebody there, Ahaziah would come in and he only reigned for one year, so it was of not much significance. But Athaliah was Jehoram's mother. And I also got that wrong. <laughs> Athaliah was actually Ahaziah's mother. That was Jehoram's wife. Jehoram and Athaliah were husband and wife. And Joash is the one that would be saved. He is the one that would um, be hidden for seven years that we're about to read about. And so it was the auntie of, oh, pardon me, the grandmother of Joash that would come to reign and the auntie would be the one that would save Joash from the wrath of the grandmother. Pardon me, this slide is absolutely wrong. I got these things wrong. I'm not sure what I was thinking here, but I see it while I'm preaching. Um, but we see Jehoshaphat, then Jehoram, and then Ahaziah, and then Joash. So Ataliah and Jehoram are husband and wife. And so look, before we continue though, it's important to look at um, and understand that there are actually two King Joashes in history. There are two of them. And we've got to be careful that we don't just do a word search and look up the word Joash in wanting to study about this. Look, Israel and Judah both had a King Joash each. Okay, Joash and Israel was a wicked king because we know all the kings were wicked there in Israel. But Joash in Judah was mostly a good king. Ellen White doesn't say much about either of them. The Bible has a little bit of both, but we got to be careful that we don't just mix these two characters together. The famous instance of King Joash from the kingdom of Israel is found in his encounter actually with Elisha the prophet. Let me show you. In 2 Kings 13, 14 to 20, it's quite a long passage, but it's one that is quite familiar and famous actually. Elisha, he'd fallen sick of a sickness, he's about to die. And Joash the king of Israel, he came unto him, wept over his face and said, Oh my father, my father, the chariot of Israel and the horsemen thereof. And Elisha said unto him, Take bow and arrows. And he took unto him bow and arrows, and he said to the king of Israel, 
put thine hand upon the bow. And he put his hand upon it. And Elisha put his hand upon the king's hand. And he said, Open the window eastward. And he opened it. Then Elisha said, Shoot. And he shot. And he said, The arrow of the Lord's deliverance and the arrow of deliverance from Syria. For thou shalt smite the Syrians and Aphek till thou hast consumed them. And he said, Take the arrows. And he took them and he said unto the king of Israel, Smite upon the ground. And he smote thrice or three times and he stopped. And the man of God was wroth with him and said, Thou shouldest have smitten five or six times. Then hadst thou smitten Syria till thou hadst consumed them. Whereas now thou shalt smite Syria but thrice. And Elisha died and they buried him and the band of the Moabites invaded the land at the coming in of the year. Remember, this Joash, this Joash here that we read in his encounter with uh, Elisha the prophet, he was not a good king. He was not a good king. The Joash that we're studying today is of the kingdom of Judah. He was of the kingdom of Israel. But what we're looking at is kingdom of Judah because he was the only one that was Good. So we have to be careful when we just type in his name, Joash, into our Bible software. And look, uh, I want to un- understand all that I know about Joash. There is actually more than two Joashes. Two were kings, but actually there was another Joash because he was the father of Gideon. So that was a different man as well, right? So of course we know that there are many people out there with same names, even same last names as well. We got to be careful when we study and do a word search. Anyways, let's come back to the story of King Joash, good King Joash. Athaliah, remember, is reigning for six years. She thinks she has successfully destroyed all of the king's seed, but secretly, Joash is being groomed to be the next king. Let's go back to 2 Chronicles 23 now, verses 1 to 3 and verse 11. And in the seventh year, Jehoiada strengthened himself and took the captains of hundreds, Azariah the son of Jehoram, and Ishmael the son of Jehohanan, and Azariah the son of Obed, and Messiah the son of Adiah, and Elashaphat the son of Zikri, into covenant with him. So Jehoiada was the one that was raising up Joash here, right? And he takes captains of hundreds. And then in verse 2, it says this, And they went about in Judah and gathered the Levites out of all the cities of Judah and the chief of the fathers of Israel. And they came to Jerusalem and all the congregation made a covenant with the king in the house of God. And he said unto them, Behold, the king's son shall reign as the Lord hath said of the sons of David. Then they brought out the king's son and put upon him the crown and gave him the testimony and made him king. And Jehoiada and his sons anointed him and said, God save the king. So at the seventh year, when Joash was seven years old, Jehoiada the priest would bring out Joash with all the armies, the the captains of hundreds, right? And they would anoint him king. He would be crowned king at the tender age of seven years old of age. What a shock it must have been for Athaliah, the grandmother, to hear about the crowning of a king. She thought she had destroyed everybody. For six years she had peace. For six years she had been reigning. Everything was okay. But of course, God had other plans. 
And so what happens when Athaliah hears about the crowning of King Joash? She comes running around in 2 Chronicles 23, verses 12 and 13. Now when Athaliah heard the noise of the people running and praising the king, she came to the people into the house of the Lord. And she looked, and behold, the king stood at his pillar at the entering in, and the princes and the trumpets by the king, and all the people of the land rejoiced and sounded with trumpets, also the singers with instruments of music, and such as taught to sing praise. Then Athaliah, what did she do? She rent her clothes and said, treason, treason. So Athaliah, she comes running around. She sees all the, the singers and the trumpeters and the army, and she sees King Joash, just about to be crowned king, and she cries out, treason, treason. And that word treason means betrayal of your country or attempt to kill or overthrow the government. She is accusing Joash for something that she actually did. She was the one that overthrew the government by, government by killing all her grandchildren, all her grandsons. And you know, it's interesting that Satan, he's called the accuser of the brethren in Revelation chapter 12. And he likes to accuse others of things that he himself has done as well. You know, many times we are guilty, but Jesus, he's purged us from our sins of the past and he makes us more than overcomers. And so Satan, he tries to still bring our past and accuse us for the things that we've done, yet Jesus has forgiven. But too often we like to accuse others as well of their sins. Sins that we sometimes are guilty of ourselves. Sins that we have become so personally acquainted of. And though Jesus has forgiven us, we tend to cast those sins of our past upon others as well. And we got to be so careful that we don't call out the speck in our brother's eye whilst we have a big beam sticking out in our own eye as well. Coming back to the story, friends. Coming back to the story of King Joash. After Athaliah runs around shouting treason, what happens to her? 2 Chronicles 23, 14 and 15. Then Jehoiada the priest brought out the captains of hundreds that were set over the host and said unto them, Have her forth of the rangers, and whoso followeth her, let him be slain with the sword. For the priest said, Slay her not in the house of the Lord. So they laid hands on her, and when she was coming to the entering of the horse gate by the king's house, they slew her there. So Jehoiada, the priest, not Joash, he is the one that gives the orders to have her taken out and have her killed. Jehoiada was the one, along with his wife, who had raised Joash. He was basically like a father to him, and was obviously still guiding Joash at this age, since he was only seven years old old. So Jehoiada is the one that makes those orders and the execution is carried out. Let's continue reading. Verse 16 to 18 and then verse 21. After Athaliah is killed, look at what happens. Jehoiada, he made a covenant between him and between all the people and between the king that they should be the Lord's people. Then all the people went to the house of Baal and break it down break down his altars and his images in pieces and slew Metan, the priest of Baal, before the altars. Also Jehoiada appointed the officers of the house of the Lord by the hand of the priests, the Levites, whom David had distributed in the house of the Lord and to offer the burnt offerings of the Lord as it is written in the law of Moses, with rejoicing and with singing as it was ordained by David. 
And all the people of the land rejoiced, and the city was quiet after that they had slain Athaliah with the sword. So Athaliah, she is killed. Jehoiada makes a covenant between the people and the king and God. And they go out and destroy all the altars of Baal and all those images and all the priests of Baal. And the priesthood and the temple services are restored. God brings the people into the worship of God again. And God, He gives the people and the land quietness and rest. There's a revival and a return of the people back to God. And though Joash is reigning, he is king. He's, the, he's like the figurehead. It was all actually performed under the command and instruction of Jehoiada, the priest. And you know, friends, this is such an important lesson to learn. It's really important to have wise and godly counselors. We save ourselves much trouble and heartache and even rebellion when we put godly counselors around us. That was what Jehoiada was to the young boy king, Joash, who was put in this position of authority that is reserved usually only for grown men. Yet Joash, he would rise up to the occasion. He would be a good king because of this wise counselor that he had in his somewhat father figure, Jehoiada. You know, when we see the, the, the king that was ripped into two, the kingdom, pardon me, that was ripped into two after King Solomon, there was Rehoboam and Jeroboam. Rehoboam, he was the son of Solomon and he chose wrong his counselors. He chose his friends, those of the same age and the same peers with no wisdom and did not fear God. Those old aged men that had served under the reign of Solomon counseled him and gave him good counsel to treat them people wisely. But because he chose the bad counselors, it was because of that that the kingdom was ripped into two and a portion of them went over to Jeroboam, but only two tribes stayed with Rehoboam. We have to be so careful who we take counsel with, who we choose to share our burdens and our problems with. Why? You get the wrong counsel. You might be led down the wrong path. But thank God, Joash had that good counselor, Jehoiada. And so Joash, under the, this, this good counsel and training, he would rise up to the occasion of being a good king. Look at what he did. Second Chronicles 24 verse 1, Joash was seven years old when he began to reign. And he reigned in Jerusalem. His mother's name also was Zibiah of Beersheba. And so he would reign for 40 years, the Bible says. And there was one act that defined his, his rulership as king that we're going to look at now. It says there in verses 8 to 10 of 2 Chronicles 24. Look what the Bible mentions. And at the king's commandment, they made a chest and set it without at the gate of the house of the Lord. And they made a proclamation through Judah and Jerusalem to bring into the Lord the collection that Moses, the servant of God, laid upon Israel in the wilderness. And all the princes and all the people rejoiced and brought in and cast into the chest until they had made an end. What did Joash do? He re-established the tithe and the offering system. Obviously, because they had worshipped Baal and burnt to Baal and sacrificed to Baal and at the altars, the, the Levites had been scattered. They had nothing to support themselves with because the tithe and the offering had stopped. And so as a result, that the place of worship was neglected. 
So we, we see this sometimes that, oh, it's just money. But, you know, friends, that goes to support the workers that are in the ministry. We're so thankful that, you know, people still gave their tithe and their offering. They were faithful to the church throughout the pandemic. And I was thankful even for the two years of lockdown that even though the Bible workers could not do so much, they tried their very best to still reach out to people. God still supported our Bible workers as well, our ministry workers. It is important, friends, in when, when it comes to the giving of our tithes and our offerings. It's not just a simple stewardship act. It's a spiritual act. And I think we underestimate to a great degree the importance of giving our tithes and our offerings. It was the, for the establishment of true worship. Look at this. In verse 12 to 14, we read, and the king and Jehoiada gave it what was collected to such as did the work of the service of the house of the Lord and hired masons and carpenters to repair the house of the Lord and also such as wrought iron and brass to mend the house of the Lord. So the workmen wrought and the work was perfected by them and they set the house of God in his state and strengthened it. And when they had finished it, they brought the rest of the money before the king and Jehoiada, whereof were made vessels for the house of the Lord, even vessels to minister and to offer withal, and spoons and vessels of gold and silver. The collection of all this money not only went to support the Levites again, but to rebuild the temple, which had been broken down because of neglect. And so they, they reestablished the whole worship service. It wasn't for self-enrichment. Even as you give the tithe and offering into the money bags at your churches there, it doesn't go to the pastor. It goes to the conference. It goes to the mission. It goes to support the gospel work and even the offering there. You know, friends, the fact that you are able to sit in any chair in church, somebody had to pay for it. Somewhere from the church coffers, money had to come out to pay for the air conditioning or the heating wherever you are and, and the refurbishment of the church and, and the stage and the electricity and everything. You know, friends, we are very much blessed and we don't realize it. But God, He needs that tithe and offering, not just to enrich the pastor or the church itself, no, but to be a blessing so that true worship can be re-established and that His glory might shine out throughout the land all over again. God still calls us, friends. He still calls us to sacrifice for His cause today as well. Look at what the pen of inspiration says in Review and Herald, May 9, 1893. Let each regularly examine his income, which is all a blessing from God, and set apart the tithe as a separate fund to be sacredly the Lord's. This fund should not in any case be devoted to any other use. It is devoted solely to support the ministry of the gospel. After the tithe is set apart, let gifts and offering be apportioned as God hath prospered you. You know, friends, we are called to examine our income, to examine how much we're paid, to make sure that we can give our best of the tithe to God. And then even after that, even after the tithe has been set apart, she says what? Let gifts and offerings be apportioned according to how much God has prospered. That's why God has never given us a percentage. God blessed you more, give more, right? And, and it doesn't have to stay at 5 or 10%. You can give even more. If God, if you're living on 100,000 and you used to earn 100,000, but God gives you a million, you can give much more, right? 
It doesn't have to stay at 10%. Let us give even more as God has blessed us, as he has prospered us. Look at this. Review and Herald, November 11, 1902. Brethren and sisters, will you today pledge yourselves before God to pray for these workers who have been chosen to go to other lands? Will you pledge yourselves not only to pray for them, but to sustain them with your tithes and offerings? Will you pledge yourself to practice strict self-denial in order that you may have more to give for the advancement of the work in the regions beyond? We feel moved by the Spirit of God to ask you to pledge yourselves before Him to lay by something weekly for the support of our missionaries. God will help and bless you in doing this. You see, friends, we may not be called to foreign lands to be missionaries, but we can support those missionaries with our tithes and with our offerings. And to make sure that we can give, we have to learn to practice strict self-denial. God does not ask us just to give what we can according to our budget, but we should live in such a way that allows us to give extra You see that, friends? The fact that people can put money into these coffers, some of it is our abundance. But God is asking, you can't just give your abundance all the time. Just like the widow who sacrificed her needs, there's got to be something of where we can sacrifice, practice strict self-denial so that we could put money into the coffers of God as well. Look at this, Patriarchs and Prophets, 527 paragraph 1. The contributions required of the Hebrews for religious and charitable purposes amounted to fully one-fourth of their income. How much? One-fourth, a quarter. That's 25%, friends. That's 25% of their income. That means they gave 10% tithe and 15% offering. Can you believe that? But let's keep reading. Testimonies for the Church, Volume 3, 395, Paragraph 3. Here we are told it was a third, no less than one-third of their income was devoted to sacred and religious purposes. One-third. Can you believe that? 33%. That means they gave 10% tithe, 23% offering. That's unheard of today. I think many of us just struggle with giving 10% tithe and maybe even 10% offering. Usually how offering is given though is even less than that. We look into our wallets or our purses as the bag is passed around and we look at what we can give or what we have in our wallet and then we just give that or sometimes we just empty it, which is not even 10%, you know? But if we had to give up to 25% or even 33%, friends, that takes planning. It takes planning. Not just planning on how much to give for the day when we come to church, but also planning of our lives, planning of our spending habits, planning our budget, how we live, and how we're actually able to give that much. You know, a person who gives 25% or up to 30%, that's not by accident, friends. It's not because they're ultra or super rich. To the ultra rich who earn so much, they have to give a lot. It's a lot. Do you understand that, friends? We have to be so careful in how we plan our finances. But yet, Ellen White's not done. Look at this, Councils on Stewardship, 93, paragraph two and three. The tithe is sacred, reserved by God for himself. It is to be brought into his treasury to be used to sustain the gospel laborers in their work. 
For a long time, the Lord has been robbed because there are those who do not realize that the tithe is God's reserved portion. Some have been dissatisfied and have said, I will no longer pay my tithe, for I have no confidence in the way things are managed at the heart of the work. But will you rob God because you think the management of the work is not right? Make your complaint plainly and openly in the right spirit to the proper ones. Send in your petitions for things to be adjusted and set in order, but do not withdraw from the work of God and prove unfaithful because others are not doing it right. You know, this last quote that we read here is a reminder to us that we must pay our tithe and even pay our offering as a duty. It can't be based upon how we feel or even how we see things managed within the church. If we're not happy, we got to voice up. We can't remain silent and say, I just have no confidence in them anymore and I'm just going to walk away. We should approach the leadership. We should talk to the church board. We should talk to the mission or the conference leaders and tell them, look, I'm not happy with how the tithe and the offering is being paid. Oh, pardon me, being used. We have to voice up. And too often in Asian culture, we don't. We just react and say, I'm not going to pay my money anymore. I'm not going to put my money in. But friends, that's not the right spirit. That's not the right attitude. How important it is still to be faithful to God in this area of giving, even when we see things that are not, not done properly. But we can't just keep giving and not say anything. That would be wrong as well. And we can't just stop giving and not say anything as well. The point is, we got to learn to speak up. We've got to learn to say it in such a way that we come across as, we're, as if we're trying to help. We're trying to push things forward, not just saying, I disagree with you, and that's it. No, we've got to give the reason why. We've got to reason. God is a reasonable God. We've got to learn to reason as well, right? And so, friends, God, He wants us to speak. He wants us to communicate, not just hold back and withdraw from giving our tithe. And as a result, that becomes on us a guilty point of withholding our tithe and offering from God. So friends, we've got to be careful. We've got to make sure that we are benevolent in giving. That is exactly what Joash established when he came in to ruler as a king there over Judah. And so now, 2 Chronicles 24, 14, this is what it says. And they offered burnt offerings in the house of the Lord continually all the days of Jehoiada. We're told that the children of Judah would offer what? Burnt offerings all the days of Jehoiada. Notice it doesn't say all the days of King Joash. Why Jehoiada, the high priest? What happened? Why was his name of such significance rather than King Joash? Well, let's keep reading. Verse 15 to 18. But Jehoiada waxed old and was full of days when he died. A hundred and thirty years old was he when he died. And they buried him in the city of David among the kings because he had done good in Israel, both toward God and his house. Can you believe it? A priest was buried in the tombs of the kings. Now after the death of Jehoiada came the princes of Judah and made obeisance to the king. Then the king hearkened unto them and they left the house of the Lord God of their fathers and served groves and idols and wrath came upon Judah and Jerusalem for this their trespasses. Can you believe that friends? After King Jehoiada died, the princes of Judah would come and influence the king to turn away from God and go back to serving idols all over again. Joash listened to the wrong counsel. 
He had that good godly counsel in the high priest Jehoiada, but after he passed away, he was desperate for any sort of counsel and guidance, I guess. And he went to the wrong place. The princes would come and turn his heart and the whole kingdom away from God. But yet God, he in his mercy would send people to warn him, but Joash would not listen. Verse 2 of Second Chronicles 24, And Joash did that which was right in the sight of the Lord all the days of Jehoiada the priest. So whilst Jehoiada was alive, his influence over the king was a good influence to hold in check the evil in the hearts of those in Judah. Joash would stay close to him for counsel and be faithful to God. Friends, once again, we have to be so careful whom we choose as counselors. And even though Joash, he would choose unwisely the princes, God in his mercy still reached out to him. Verse 19 to 22 of Second Chronicles 24. Yet he sent prophets to them to bring them again unto the Lord, and they testified against them, but they would not give ear. And the Spirit of God came upon Zechariah, the son of Jehoiada, the priest, which stood above the people and said unto them, Thus saith God, Why transgress ye the commandments of the Lord, that ye cannot prosper? Because ye have forsaken the Lord, he hath also forsaken you. And they conspired against him and stoned him with stones. Can you believe that? At the commandment of who? The king in the court of the house of the Lord. Thus Joash the king remembered not the kindness which Jehoiada his father had done to him, but slew his son. And when he died, he said, The Lord look upon it and require it. You know, God, he would send prophets, but Joash would not listen. And God would even speak through the the son of Jehoiada, Zechariah. Yet Joash would kill him by stoning him to death. He forgot all the goodness and kindness that Jehoiada had shown him in his lifetime. Why? All because he chose wrong friends and wrong counselors. After this, Joash would be wounded in battle against the Syrians and his own servants would conspire against him to kill him. You know, friends, how did such a good king become so bad? to the point that he would not even remember the goodness of those before him. An interesting pattern. Joash, he was only good as long as his uncle Jehoiada was alive. He went south after all, uh, after his uncle passed away. And you know, friends, some of us, we are riding the coattails of those that are righteous around us. Some of us were seeing miracles in our church, not because we ourselves did something good, not because we were praying for it, but because the person in the seat next to you had been praying. The person sitting in the the seat in front of you was righteous. Some of us were, were benefiting from seeing blessings being poured out upon our church and our lives because of the prayers of all those around us, not because we ourselves are committing to God and praying as well. And so for a time, we're good. And the goodness of those around us hold our wickedness in check until one day that person leaves our church and leaves the country for another place and goes to another church. And then what happens? We realize that all the blessings are gone as well. You know, friends, there are some we owe the blessings of God to in our own lives. A plane does not crash because a righteous person is sitting on that plane. Our lives are preserved while we we travel in the car or the bus because someone there is walking with God. But friends, we can't be like Joash. We've got to stop riding the blessings 
of other people around us. Let's be the difference maker. Let's be a Jehoiada and not a Joash to the point that your very presence holds in check the evil that is around us. It has a godly influence over everyone you come in touch with. When you enter a room, people are blessed because the Holy Spirit is accompanying you and God is with you and others can see it and feel it and sense it. This is the type of blessing, friends, that the world needs today. We're called to be the salt of the earth, the light of the world. But in order to do that, we ourselves must have a personal encounter and relationship with Jesus. We must know him personally for ourselves so that no matter who comes into our lives, we can be faithful regardless of the circumstance. And so I guess Joash, he got a bit confident seeing all the blessings falling around him in his kingdom. And yes, he was good because the influence was good, but he forgot to have that personal relationship with Jesus. And so he sought too heavily for counsel upon others. But today, friends, let's not depend upon the arm of flesh. Though that arm of flesh might be good, let us make sure that even in these blessed times, we lean always heavily, 100% on the arm of God. May that be our prayer today. Let us pray. Father in heaven, Lord, thank you for reminding us of all the good people in our lives, of all the Jehoiadas that we have around us, of all the people that you have blessed us with. But Lord, help us not to neglect you. Let us not look at the human, the flesh, to to exalt them thinking that they are God, not realizing that they will pass away. But Lord, you never do. You are always constant. You're always there. You never slumber nor sleep. Help us, Father, to commit our lives to you, to take counsel from you, to lean heavily, really our whole weight, upon you. Let us, Lord, not lean on the arm of flesh, for in a moment they can be taken away from us, And then we can be rendered helpless and lost, seeking for the wrong counsel. Lord, today, whilst we have heard these words from your your, your scriptures, from, from the Holy Spirit itself, help us, Father, to build our relationship upon Jesus Christ, the solid rock. Thank you for we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Friends, God bless you. May God draw near to you on this Sabbath day, let us build continually, especially on these Sabbath hours, our relationship with Jesus Christ. That even as we're in the midst of fellowshipping with our church members, our friends and our family, let us not forget to spend time with the Almighty God who is able to save to the uttermost them that come to Him. May God bless each and every one of you and see you next time. Goodbye for now. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.